Well, I'm very thankful that Matthew got the right passage because if he wouldn't have, I'd just speak on that passage anyway, not to be a disappointment to him, and uh, I don't want to... But turn your Bibles to Galatians uh, 2 and verse 20. Very familiar verse of Scripture. This morning as we were talking about um, the finished work of Jesus Christ, we as Christians always rejoice in His finished work. And that work was as we observed in the text of Scripture, was finished at the cross. Uh, remember this morning's message was on two words, two uh, Greek words, which uh, can be translated to be more than two words, but um, the words are thirst, I am thirsty, and finished, it is finished. But when Jesus Christ said it was finished at the cross, it means that uh, it is finished at the cross, and the way in which he said that means it's not only finished there, but as John the Gospel writer was talking about it, he says it was finished at the cross and it's finished now. But that's also true every time anyone reads that passage. Because we can all read that passage and say when Jesus Christ said it is finished, it was finished at the cross, and the way that's stated means, and it's finished there, and the effects of that being finished continue all the way up into the present. So it continues up into our present. It will be a passage of Scripture that is forever true. It is always true that the work was finished at the cross, and it is, remains finished today, which is what that text says. To be finished means to be accomplished, to be completed, to be perfected, to be brought successfully to the intended goal. That means everything that Christ intended to accomplish at the cross, he finished. Everything that he intended to accomplish in his earthly ministry, he finished. Everything about our salvation, he finished. It's complete. It's brought to the goal. And this goal is to glorify God. It is to defeat the rebellion of sin and death and of Satan himself. It is to accomplish the salvation of sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So that we look at that and we say nothing is lacking, nothing is missing. Nothing can be added. It is complete. God's divine purpose to sum up all things in Christ was accomplished and secured at the cross. And the divine purpose is now playing out in time. In the end, God will be glorified. Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ will save all who are in Him, and we shall all be a part of the kingdom of God forever. So the end is clear. The accomplishment has taken place. It's just a matter of time for the fruition, the fullness of that to be seen in all of our lives. So then we ask the question, I think it's important to ask the question, so how does the total victory of the cross translate into the way in which we live the Christian life? How does the total victory of the cross, the finished work of the cross, how does that translate into the way we live the Christian life? Since Christ is all in all, how do we live for Him? I want to encourage your thinking in this regard, but uh, some think we live by the resources given to us as Christians. God has given us a new heart. He's given us a heart for God. He's given us a new nature. He's given us the power of God. So sometimes it's easy to think, well, I take my new nature, and I take the heart that God has given me, 
And I take the power that God has given to me, and I take all of that, and with my new nature and my new heart, I live for God. And what I want to suggest to you this evening is I think it's a little bit different from that. We should think differently about it. Because I think the more biblical approach to live is to live in Christ. It's to live by Christ. It's to live with Christ. Christ becomes the focus. Not my heart, but Christ becomes the focus. I'm going to expand on that a little bit. I want you to challenge your thinking a little bit and... uh, You can challenge me as well if you say, you know, I'm not sure I agree with everything. That's fine. You can come talk to me. But the Christian life is the life of Christ. I'm quite sure of that. And the purpose of living the Christian, our intention is always to be looking to Christ. That's one thing I know. It's always to be looking to Jesus Christ. I don't look to my heart. I don't look to the wonderful resources that God has given to me. I look to Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage in Galatians. And remember, the Galatian problem had to do with the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were following up with the Apostle Paul and going to where he was preaching the gospel and saying to them, you know, you got most of it right, not all of it. What you need now is you need the law because you need to know how to live. So the follow-up to the finished work of Christ and the gospel message of Christ that the Apostle Paul was preaching was you need to come under the terms of the law, so you need to be obedient to the things which the law is stating. The Judaizers were bringing back the law and bringing people under the law in order to facilitate their Christianity. And the Apostle Paul said no. And really the Scriptures say no, and the finished work of Jesus Christ says no, so it's not just the Apostle Paul speaking of that. And sometimes when you're reading the book of Galatians, you may wonder, is this talking about justification or sanctification? And I say, yes. Um, It's talking a bit about both. Because the way you're justified is the way you're sanctified. And the the two are uh, a little different in the things that are taking place. Your justification is where God forgives you of your sins at the cross. He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. And God looks at you and says, you are perfect. You measure up. You are complete in Christ. And that's at the beginning of the Christian life. Our sanctification is when God sets us apart from this world and sets us apart more to be like Jesus Christ. And then our glorification is when we are completely set apart and we are conformed to to the image and likeness of Christ. And that will take place when Jesus Christ returns. And the dead in Christ are raised and we are changed and we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air in glory, the glory of God. But all of those are accomplished by Jesus Christ and secured at the cross for us. But sanctification and justification are just aspects, two different aspects of this work that was fully accomplished by Jesus Christ. Justification is instantaneous. Sanctification takes place over time. Glorification is instantaneous. So the beginning and ending are instantaneous works. And sanctification, it could all be instantaneous, but that would mean that When you are saved and you say, I believe in Jesus, you would just be launched up into the air, into the arms of God. You would be justified, sanctified, and glorified all at the same time. And sometimes I think that would be a good idea. But at least I think it would be a good idea for me. It would be just wonderful not to have to struggle through all the challenges and and difficulties of the Christian life. But God has seen fit for us to face those challenges because he wants us to see Christ. He doesn't want us to see our hearts. He wants us to see Christ. 
And he wants us to see the sufficiency of Christ. And he wants us to see the finished work of Christ. And he wants us to see the presence of Christ. And he wants us to see the power of Christ. And the Judaizers wanted them to see the law. And the Apostle Paul says, no, we are to see Christ. And the, the, the key statement in this whole epistle is Galatians 2.20. And that's where Paul, the Apostle, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the whole of his message in one verse. So, this passage reads as follows. I'm sure many of you, in fact, most of you have memorized this verse. It's a great verse to have in your heart. I've been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I looked at this verse of Scripture, it seems to me I can cut it in half. Because the, the first half of this verse talks about who we are. It talks about the things that have happened to us, our nature. It, it talks about who we are in Christ. The second part talks about the way we live, who we are, which is always an important uh, way to think about the Christian life. Uh, scripture often uh, speaks when we're talking about how you live to first say, well, who are you? What, what, what is your nature? What, what, what is it that you are in Christ? And then how then do you take that and live for Christ? And oftentimes we say, well, I don't want to spend so much time on our nature and who we are. I'd rather say, tell me what to do. We want to do a tell me what to do kind of Christianity. Say, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. But understanding this nature and the person and work of Christ is the place where you derive the power for what you do. So it's a very important thing. You see that clearly in, in Roman passages like Romans chapter 6, which give a, a theology lesson before they tell you the ABCs of how to present yourself and present your members as instruments of righteousness and not instruments of unrighteousness. So who you are becomes a, a, a most important part of, of living the Christian life. But notice this, who you are, because he first speaks of your death and your life. Because he says, and I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I think that's an important uh, uh, statement to, to think about. And when it says, I have been crucified with Christ, it's that same kind of tense that was used when we said, when Jesus Christ said, finished. Where it's something that is done in the past with effects that continue up into the present. And when it says, I have been crucified, it means when Christ was crucified, I was crucified. And the effects of that continue right up now. That's something very important to understand because I live my Christian life now. But if you're going to live the Christian life now, you need to know that what happened when Christ was crucified is what generates the now in me, how I live now, the effects of this cross. When we talk about the death of Christ, we use the word substitution that Christ died in our place. And sometimes when we use the word substitution, that word sort of means that uh, 
here I am, I'm about to speak, and someone is going to substitute for me. So I stand to the side, and that person comes, and they speak as my substitute. And you say, well, that's substitution because this person now has taken my place, and I'm no longer speaking, but he is speaking in my place for me. So I'm off to the side. And you can think of substitution that way. We're thankful Jesus Christ died for me. When God poured out the wrath for all of my sin, which was imputed to Jesus Christ, He poured out it upon Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful truth. And Jesus Christ says, I'm doing this for you. And He looks at you and He says, I'm doing this for you. I'm taking your sin. I'm taking your wrath. I'm taking your judgment. And I'm securing your peace with God. Paul states that in a stronger way. Because he said, I'm taking your place, but when I die, you die. You died. So this substitution includes the idea of really a a very close association or identification. So that when I look at the cross, I say, well, when Christ died, I died. You say, well, I'm very much alive right now, and we are very much alive. We're alive twofold with the the life of Christ and also with physical life. But I am living and I have eternal life, so I have the fullness of life, but I'm living now. So what does it mean that I died? Well, everything that Jesus Christ accomplished in his death, he accomplished for me as I died in him. So it's, strong, it's, it's substitutionary atonement. It's he's our substitute. As long as you understand that what he did there means that he did that for you, but he did that and, in fact, you died because he died. It's, it's, it's identification. It's substitutionary identification. It's, it's you are in him. So when he died because of the wrath of God, you died. When he died to secure divine justice, you died. When, you, when he died so that you would no longer be under the curse of sin and death, you died so that you're no longer under the curse of sin and death. So you look at that and you say, he, he truly accomplished my salvation at the cross. And that's what the text says. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, when Christ was there upon the cross, he was in my place but in such a way that he does what he does as my representative for me. He's, he's representing me, but I, in fact, am dying there. He died, I died. It's so one of the reasons why we can say I died to sin and I died to death because that's what happened at the cross. It's as if I died because I did die in Christ. It's very important to see that because it, it strengthens this picture, I think, of substitution and makes it, uh, brings it out and highlights it in the way that it should be. Because that finished work of all that Christ accomplished in the cross, he accomplished for me. So when the Judaizers are coming in and say, you know, there's something missing out of your salvation, the Apostle Paul says, when Christ died, I died. I mean, it is Christ who accomplished this finished work. When he said, it is finished, he doesn't mean it's finished in your place for you. It means it's finished 
and you are, I am in you, you are in me. It is, it is finished now in you. It's done. There's nothing you can add to your salvation. There's nothing you can take away from it. And you died to sin. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you live unto righteousness. Because all that Christ did, he did for you. So that it's appropriate to say, when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he was raised from the dead, I was raised from the dead. When he propitiated the wrath of God, the wrath of God is propitiated for me. When he secured peace with God, the peace of God is secured for me. When he set me free from sin and death, I am set free from sin and death. That's who I am. And that's who I am in Christ. It's not who I am by myself. It's who I am in Christ because Christ did all of this in my place for me. So be very, be very individual and particular when you think of substitutionary atonement. It's one, it's one way to think of it is just in sort of general terms. But the Apostle says, Paul says, I have been crucified. He doesn't say to the, to the Galatian believers, now you need to understand things. You have been crucified, but the Apostle Paul speaks very specifically in his case, because that's the way we are to look at it. We are to say, I have been crucified with Christ. So ever somebody wants to add something to your salvation and says to you, something is missing, you need to do this, you need to add this, you need to be this, you need to, you need to say to them, I have been crucified with Christ. And when I'm crucified, the effects of that crucifixion continue in me. In me. So the second thing he says, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, in fact, I do live, but the I is not the defining influence in me. The I is not the defining influence in my Christian life. It's Christ who lives in me. And it's He is the one who is the defining influence. Now let me illustrate this by stretching your thinking a little bit. Because I want to talk about Greek philosophy. You say, really? Well, that's a change. But I do want to talk about Greek philosophy for a moment. Because I want to talk about scholasticism. Now, the scholastic period was a period several hundred years ago that um, philosophers and theologians even like to look back and say this is a time of when Christianity was sort of at a lull and um, there was the impact of Greek philosophy in Christianity. And the impact of Greek philosophy in Christianity was taking faith and reason, putting the two together. That's what I've always taught. I've always said faith and reason. And so the theologians were saying, well, we have this upturn in philosophy that is coming and, and reason. How does this philosophy in Christianity, how does the faith that we have and reason, how do, how do we piece, how do we fit this together? That's an important question. But there's something else that's also going on because when... The, the philosophers were looked at. They said, well, you know, the philosophers had the right methodology. They just had the wrong objects. Now, if you're taking notes, you can draw a little picture if you want to. But draw a little picture of a little heart with two lines going up like this. Here's the heart. And the philosopher says, this is the heart of man. And the heart of man should 
pursue the things that are virtuous, the things that are noble. They should pursue those things that are um, true, the ideals, and even some would say the gods. You should pursue all of those things. But also they draw a line over here, and you can put a positive by this, all the things, the virtuous things that should be pursued, and then all the things that should not be pursued, like the material world, the things of this world, and sin and vice and, and all of those things that we would say in over here. And so we'd say, so the Greek philosophers come, and, and part of their methodology in the, is Plato and Aristotle and and all the rest of the boys were, were always looking for this ideal and this virtuous thing. So they bring that into Christianity, and Christianity then says, well, you know, the philosophers had the right methodology. They just had the wrong object. Because instead of having virtue and things that are ideal and, and the gods, what we know is it's God should be that which is that we are seeking, that, 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 that He is to be the object of, of our heart, and our heart should be looking to Him, and then we should look, not look at the things, the other things that would captivate our hearts. And so we take the methodology of the Greek philosophers, and we bring it into Christianity, and we sort of baptize this approach, and so it's from the heart, and what also was then added is a little prevenient grace a little grace that quickens this heart so that it can pursue the things in the right manner. So provenient grace was talking about it's, it's grace before grace is given, but it's this grace that allows the heart to be seeking in the right direction. And this provenient grace would then be given to all mankind so that all have, can be pursuing all of this. But you, you look at that, and I think that it's, it's true today that many people think of their Christian life in that regard. The Christian life is from our hearts. And we think that we are to, to utilize the resources that God has given to us. He's given us a new nature. He's given us a new heart that seeks after God. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us all these things so that we can be heart full of seeking God for the right reason. But really, when you take that methodology, you're taking a, a really a humanistic methodology. Because I think the Bible teaches a different truth. I think this passage teaches a different truth. Because our love for God doesn't come from our hearts. It doesn't come from weeding out the things that are the negative influence. Because if that is, case, is the truth, really our hearts are a finite... You, you can draw a, a pie chart and say, this is the love. This is my love pie chart. And I'm going to graph my love for God versus my love for my family, uh, my love for uh, my dog. I kind of love my dog a little bit. He would go in the chart there a little bit. And, and my love for uh, my wife, my children, uh, my friends, my church. And then I have to ask the question, am I loving God more than all of those things? And so on the pie chart, it would always be kind of moving around, I'm sure, a little bit. But you can sort of see that, you know, I only have this ability, so I've got to make sure that God gets 50, at least 51%. He should have most, so I can say that I love God more than I love all the rest. But at least he should have a percentage that is greater than any of the other one of the percentages. That would certainly be the case. 
But I don't know how to think about that in that way. And, and when someone says, you need to love God more, I say, well, I only have so much. What, what do I have to empty out before I can love God more? I mean, it's just sort of a strange way of thinking. Perhaps I'm weird in my thinking about that. But I, I just think that's a, a, the wrong concept. I think the focus should not be upon my heart, which is a, which is a, a limited amount. And so it's, it's like my strength is a limited amount. My abilities are limited so that they're always finite. And so I have to utilize the resources as best I can. But the Christian life is not about living out from my heart. It is about Christ and living out in, from His heart and living the Christian life from the heart of God. If I live the Christian life from the heart of God, I have an infinite, can have an infinite amount of love for God. And really what pleases God is what God, the work that He accomplishes in us. And so since Christ is the one who accomplished us on the cross, we don't ever turn away from the cross and say, okay, he's given me now all the resources so that now that I can live for him. It says, no, no, no. He's given us the resource so that we can continually live in the resource of him. The Christian life is about Christ. The Christian life is about drawing near to him. It's always significant to me that Jesus Christ, when he was talking to the disciples in the upper room, did not give them opportunities to talk about truths that are most important. He could have talked to them about what is the church. I think that would be a great theme. Or what does evangelism look like in a post-resurrection of Jesus Christ, the post-resurrection world? What does evangelism look like in a post-resurrection world? What is the church? I'm always surprised when you know, the disciples would go out and to establish the church that none of them says, i got a question, what is the church? I've never seen one. I don't know what it is. But he didn't speak about that. He didn't talk about what is the nature of the church. He didn't talk about how to do church planting. He, didn't, he says, what you need is me. What you need is to abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. You need me. And I always think even that discussion is very interesting because Jesus Christ says, I'm leaving, but I want you to abide in me. I feel like if I was there, I'd feel like saying, do you need to make up your mind? Are you leaving? Are you staying? Because I know how to abide in you if you're here. I don't know what you mean by abiding in you when you're gone. But we abide in Christ by remaining in Him, by looking to Him, by trusting in Him. And that's a different way of looking at the Christian life than looking at, at my heart, because my heart is also has... It's just not the source of my Christianity. It is Christ that is source. It is, it is Christ that is the driving factor in our relationship. And it's not just what Christ has done for us. It's Christ himself. It's his person. His presence in us. Christianity is about Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not what Christ has done for us so that we can hope for glory. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's draw near to Christ and He will draw near to you. It's I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you. And what pleases God is not when we look to our own hearts to live the Christian life with His resources, but when we continually look to Christ, when we continually depend upon Him. So Christianity should never have, scholasticism should never have taken the methodology of of the philosophers and applied it to Christianity because it took the focus off of Christ and put it upon the heart of man, which is a various, it's really a form of humanism. 
It's kind of a theistic humanism, like theistic evolution, but it's like a theistic humanism. Because our focus always to be on Christ. When you know how to live the Christian life, I say, you've got to look to Christ. You've got to depend upon Him. You've got to trust in Him. You've got to wait on Him. You've got to look to Him. You ought to see what He says in His Word. You ought to look for what He has done for you at the cross. It's, it's a Christ-centered life. And even uh, you look back on the, you know, the, the four spiritual laws, one of the things that uh, was, you know, we, we've got ourselves on the throne. We need to get Christ on the throne in our hearts. But that, that, there's really an, an element of truth that's a very strong way of, of looking at it. But it's Christ. It's all about Him. It's no longer I who live. Now, you'll notice that the crucified is in the, in the perfect tense, meaning an action that continue, that's accomplished in the past with effects that continue the present. But when he says, and it is no longer I who live, that's the present tense, but Christ who lives in me, that's the present tense. So he says, you look at the cross, and that's something that happened, and the effects of that continue so that Christ lives in me. It is no longer I who li- am living. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about Christ in me. And we'll speak more of that in just a moment, but it's just Christ. So how do you then say, okay, well, how do you live? Well, he tells you in this verse. I've been crucified, and the effects of that crucifixion are still in me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who am living, but Christ who is living in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, how does he live it? I live by faith in the Son of God. That's interesting. He doesn't say I live by faith in Christ. He says I live by faith in the Son of God. And uh, I asked the children in Sunday school, why is it, do you guys remember? I said, and Luke answered the question actually, but I said, why is it that Christ has so many names? And because we started listing some of the names that, that Jesus has and God has and our Father has, and we started listing all this Almighty God and Prince of Peace and Wonderful Counselor, and we started, you can mention all kinds of names. And they said the reason is because the names... Uh, of of the Lord Jesus, and uh, he's got so many character qualities that he cannot just have one name. And all the names of God are descriptive of his character. So he has many names because his character is multifaceted. It's amazing. So Jesus, he's the Savior. Christ, he's the Messiah. Lord, he's the Master. But the strongest word I think we can use for the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of who he is is the Son of God. And all that he accomplished for us, he accomplished as the Son of God. And it says, the life which I now live in the flesh, because there I am in the flesh. I think he's talking about the present Christian life. And he might even have an influence of that when he mentions the flesh. He'll use that as a, a negative sense. It's a life that's influenced even by the sinful flesh, the life that I'm now living. But I live by faith. And that uh, faith is believing, it's trusting, it's depending, it's abiding in Christ. But also faith is the means by which we receive 
from God. Faith is, is the way that we receive from God. We don't work for God so that we earn something and we say, you owe me something. But rather we believe, which is the act not of any kind of work, but it is the act of simply receiving all that God freely gives to us. So how do we live the Christian life? Well, we live the Christian life not by saying, well, okay, I'm going to go do the law. You, the law is, is good and wonderful. The things about the law are wonderful. Some of them pertain to the nation of Israel, but you can pick and choose uh, some of the things. You can, take a, a, you can make a wonderful thing of how to live according to the law. That would be some great things. You might want to remove some of the things that have national identity and things that just set the people apart. There are a number of things about the law that are just simply wonderful, but no one could ever measure up the law. But if you do that, you're going back to a system by do this and you shall live, which is the national covenant that God gave the children of Israel. It says here, do this and you shall live, to point out that no one was ever, the nation never lived as a nation under that kind, those kind of terms. And no one was ever saved. If you want to lift it up to a higher level and say salvation was never attained by anyone, not Moses, not David, not anyone in the Old Testament by the works of the law. So to go back and live according to that would be to go back and follow all of these requirements. And we can say, well, I have been quickened by God to go back and do the law. But that focuses upon the, the doing and, and, and the keeping of all of these requirements that God has given, when in fact the focus is upon faith in the Son of God and our faith in God. I'm not, I'm not antinomian. I'm not throwing all the commands and words because God gives us any number of commands that we are to do, but I'm simply saying the focus is not on anything other than Christ in living the Christian life. And Christ is the, the Son of God, which, which really emphasizes the fullness of all the divine attributes that you find in Christ. I don't find all the divine attributes... In the law, though the law is wonderful, the laws of God, I'm not saying anything bad about the law. But I am saying that the law is not the same thing as when you look at Jesus Christ. Because when you look at Christ, you see the Son of God. The law is not the Son of God. But Jesus is the Son of God with all of the resources of God. And I live, he says, by faith in the Son of God. That's, that's critical to the whole argument of the Apostle Paul. Keep your eyes focused upon Jesus Christ. You want to know how to live the Christian life? Draw near to Christ. That means listen to His voice by reading His Word. Spend time with Him in prayer. Draw near to Christ. Don't live by any other means. You're not saved by the doing of, of all the commands that God gives to us in the Bible. It is Christ who saves us. The commands Teach us how to walk in the victory that Christ has given to us. To walk by the power that Christ gives to us. All of Christ. And then notice what it says about Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. And then what it says, who loved me and delivered himself up for me gave himself up for me. That means it is Christ. When you are looking to Christ, it is Christ who is seeking your greatest good. It is Christ who loves you with an unconditional love. Not because we're lovely, but because he is a, 
a purposeful and loving God. It comes from the heart of God. And he's sacrificed and done everything that is required. And his love never fails. It is forever. And it's Christ that's that love. It's agape love. It's his love for us. And it says, you look to Christ because the law didn't love anybody. Christ loves us, which means he's seeking our greatest good, which means the greatest good that we can ever to attain is to be like Christ, which is what we shall be. We shall not be gods in the sense of I'm going, when I become glorified, I will be equal to Jesus Christ. I'm not, never equal to him. He's always God. I'm like him. That's amazing. Even to be like him. I always say I would be happy when I get to heaven and God would say, you know, you've not been the greatest person in your life, so he wants you to sit over there in the corner. Just as long as I'm there, I'm happy. I'll sit in the corner. I'd be happy to sit in the corner of heaven. But that's not what Christ is going to say to you or to me. He's going to say, come here and sit on the throne with me. And you've got to really not say something like, really? Because you need to be prepared for that because it's coming. He's going to, come here. He's going to go like this when you get to heaven. Come here. Just sit right here on the throne with me. I don't know how that works for all of us, but it's going to work for all of us. It's amazing. Because Christ is the one who loves us. And it says, and he delivered himself up. It means to give himself over. He gave himself over for me. This one who loves me and delivered himself over for me is the one that I am to look to to live the Christian life. What Christ can do for me is really different than what the law could do for me. Christ is the Son of God. He loves me. He delivered himself up for me. And when he delivered himself up for me, he delivered himself up in such a way that he said, it's finished. It's finished. It's complete. It's full. It's lacking in nothing. You want to be sanctified? Look to the God who sanctifies you. You want to be glorified? Look to the God who glorifies you. You want to live the Christian life? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to go through difficulties in your life? Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Him. The whole point of this passage is to say, you're not to, there's nothing that's missing when you have Christ. There's nothing else you can add to your faith. He delivered himself up to secure my justification. He delivered himself up for me to secure my sanctification. He delivered himself up for me to secure my glorification. There's nothing lacking. So I don't look at the Christian life when I come to this passage and I look at the cross and I see the cross is what has continuing effects in me and that I am living, but I'm, I'm not living for me. It's Christ who's living in me. And I'm always, we're to be looking to Christ. I'm crucified. I have been crucified with the effects of that crucifixion continuing today with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in, it should say in Christ, but it says in the Son of God. This Son of God who loves me. I know that I'm saved. And I know that I'm going to be saved because the Son of God loves me. And Jesus loves me, this I know, because Galatians 2.20 tells me so. And that's very clear in this passage. 
because he loves me and he gave himself up for me. He's the one who's done the completed work. He's the one that I'm looking to. So if you're living the Christian life, don't look to your heart. Look to your Savior. Look to Christ. Look to the Son of God and live for him. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the source of all good in our hearts and lives. We're thankful that we are saved not for, by anything that we do for you, but all that Christ has done for us. You gave all things into his hands, and Christ came and accomplished so great a work, and we come to you in Christ. And we pray that Christ may dwell in us, and that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit who glorifies Christ in us. We pray that we might live by the power of Christ. We may live by the presence of Christ. We may live in Christ. And we may live depending and abiding in Christ. We pray that you will help our focus to be upon the cross of Christ and the presence of Christ. And we're thankful for the blessings that we have only in him. And we're living in a Christless world, but we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we pray that you'll strengthen our hearts daily, every single day as we live for you, focused upon the person and work of our Savior who loves us and delivered himself up for us. Bless this truth to our hearts. Help us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.